Let's open to the open scripture to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and then the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Isaiah 6 in the Pew Bible, that's page 726, 726. And after that, Luke 15. And as mentioned in the prayer, the readings will connect with the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, the subject of our sermon this afternoon. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And in Isaiah 6, the prophet is confronted with a vision of the Lord himself, and we hope to see how that connects with the fifth petition. There the Word of God reads, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, page 1112. 1112 in the Pew Bible. And we'll read the couple of parables of the Lord Jesus here. And they again shed some light on what it means to be forgiven and to forgive those around us. Verse 8, Jesus is speaking, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property among them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." Thus ends the parable. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 563, where we have the summary of what the fifth petition of the prayer taught us by our Lord Jesus Christ, what that petition means. Question 126, what is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. That's as far as the catechism goes on the fifth petition. In response to the preaching, we'll sing from Psalm 32, where we have the declaration that God does forgive all our sins in His grace. We'll sing the stanzas one and two. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last time when we dealt with the fourth petition, I mentioned that unlike the second and the third petitions, we do tend to make regular use of the fourth one. Give us this day our daily bread. Most of us have developed that good habit of asking for the Lord to bless our meals before we 
partake and then quite often giving thanks after we've eaten. Good habits. Still, in that sermon on the fourth petition, we had to, you could say, relearn the deeper significance that the Lord is teaching us to live out of His hand, not just at mealtime, but moment by moment every day of our lives. Food is just one category of our need. We need to, therefore, grow in our understanding, our realization that every need that we receive a fulfillment of, every good gift that comes our way, it all comes from God our Father. We depend on Him for everything. Well, there's something similar going on in this fifth petition, also well-known and well-used, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's common for us to pray that petition. How many times a day don't we ask the Lord to forgive us our sins? We have a strong awareness, it seems, for the need for God to forgive. But then, why is it so hard so often for us to do the second part of this petition and forgive our debtors? How do you find it, brothers and sisters? Do you, do you find it easy to let bygones be bygones? Do you struggle with hard feelings against a certain individual? Why do we harbor criticisms of other people, even fellow church members, hide those or harbor them in our hearts and keep gnawing away at them? Why are we so often more like the older brother in Jesus' parable? We're more like him, maybe, than we care to admit. If we are so eager to have God forgive us, why are we not equally eager to forgive others? Well, we hope to tackle the underlying issue as I bring you this word of the Lord. Father, teach me to know my sin in light of your holiness. Father, teach me to know my sin in the light of your holiness. We'll see two things, the miracle of receiving forgiveness and then the grace of extending forgiveness. Well, every Christian knows that having no awareness of our sin is a big problem. This is a blind spot for unbelievers. They don't understand that they, like us, were born sinners. Often they don't even know what sin is. If you ask them what that is, they, they don't know. And when you explain to them that sin is basically choosing to live your way instead of God's way, they begin to, to get that. But generally speaking, unbelievers are not aware of their level of guilt before their Creator. They don't know how rebellious they really are. They're not aware of how far sin has penetrated to the core of their hearts, how their thoughts and their feelings, not to mention their words and their actions, are corrupt before the holy God who made heaven and earth. And since they're often not aware of these things, they have no sense of their pending doom, they have no great concern for the coming judgment of God at the end of time. And so they kind of just blithely go through life 
doing their own thing. So as Christians, we see that. We, we can see their blind spot. But can we see our own blind spot? That's a lot harder to do, isn't it? By definition, it's blind to us. So we really have to work hard and, and have God shed some light on that for us to see it. We might even ask, well, what do you mean, our blind spot? We believers confess our sins every day. We know that we need Jesus to forgive our sins. We depend on that. What are you talking about, a blind spot? Well, I think, brothers and sisters, that our blind spot is this, that we don't see very often how deep and how serious our sin really is. We treat it too lightly, and we treat it too quickly, as if it's a small matter. The blind spot, this kind of blind spot can develop in at least two places, and sometimes in both places together, but one area we can turn a blind eye to is just how sinful we are, you and I are, as Christians still. I mean, again, to compare it to an unbeliever, we know an unbeliever is completely sinful. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He or she does not have faith. They are not converted. They do not aim to please God. They're not concerned about pleasing God. So sin is the entire character of their life. But a Christian, by contrast, is converted. He or she does have the Holy Spirit, and we do aim to serve God. So there definitely is a world of difference between a believer and an unbeliever, but then sometimes that thought gets carried on and further so that the Christian is, it's thought that the Christian is so led by the Holy Spirit that he or she is on the other side of sin's control, sin's grip. The thought can develop that the Christian has been set free from the power of sin to the point where the Christian is dominated by the Holy Spirit and sin is a minor issue in his or her life. The Christian, some say, should be thought of as a son or daughter of the Father and not as a sinner. That's where some take the thinking. We're not sinners. We are children of God. We were sinners, but not anymore. Yes, the Christian can still fall into sin, say some, but only when they fail to guard themselves against temptation. But the Christian life is, is much more positive and godly because the Holy Spirit leads the believer in an ever-growing obedience. Now, there's a very fine line here. On the one hand, the Bible is clear that Christians are indeed filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, Romans 8. Christians are certainly able to do good works. A Christian's whole life is orientated totally differently than that of an unbeliever. 
And the Christian should actually absolutely be growing or maturing in faith. We read about that this morning in James. Paul says it in Ephesians 4. We are to pro proceed to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Christians should never be stagnant in their faith or obedience, but our trust should be growing deeper, our obedience to God should become more full, and yet for all of that reality, there remains in our lives, in our hearts, a presence of sin. The Holy Spirit certainly lives in our hearts, and there is a turning of, of direction in our lives, but sin continues to dwell inside of us, and that fact qualifies everyone here and every believer everywhere as still a sinner. A child of God, but still a sinner. That's the part that some Christians seem to recoil from. They don't like that conclusion. They say, I may sin and I am weak, but I'm a child of God. I'm not a sinner. My identity is not a sinner. And if you don't think you are a sinner anymore, beloved, that, that sin is sort of done in your life because you are now a Christian, then it will not take a whole lot for you to lose the sense of the miracle of forgiveness. So what do you think? Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Are you a transgressor or are you a believer? What if I said to you, you're both? This is what Martin Luther was trying to get at when he described every Christian this way, and he used a Latin expression, simul justus et peccator, which just means at the same time justified and sinner. Justified and sinner, that's what a Christian is. A non-believer is just sinner. But a believer is sinner and justified. Becoming a believer in Jesus means that our standing in the eyes of God changes from condemned to justified. But sin doesn't evaporate out of our hearts. The power of sin to exercise influence in our lives, to, to, to rule over our lives, I should say, the power to, to reign over us, that power is broken but its influence continues. Its existence is still there in our hearts and will be there until the day we die. The Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to create a new nature, but the old nature remains a force to be reckoned with, and that's what still makes us sinners. Look at how our confession describes ourselves, how we confess ourselves in Lord's Day 51. For the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us wretched sinners any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us. Did you know that you and I, as Christians, still are wretched sinners? Some people find that hard, but it's true. The word wretched here, the catechism, isn't made up. 
by the writers of the Catechism, but it comes out of Paul's words in Romans 7, where he describes himself and his struggle as a Christian man. He pictures himself as having two forces battling within him, and he says this, chapter 7, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, so the various parts of his body, I see another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's Romans 7. Wretched man that I am. That's Paul the Apostle. And that's Peter the Preacher. And that's each one of you alongside of every believer. Though I and you are righteous by faith and the Spirit is powerfully at work in us, yet we are wretched sinners still. Is this perhaps a blind spot for you? How wretched do you think you are in the eyes of God? Because how you perceive yourself, how you understand your remaining sinfulness, will make a big impact on how you perceive your neighbor and his or her remaining sinfulness. It's easy to think that our sin is small and the other guy's sin is big. But when you understand before the Almighty that you and I are wretched sinners, then the thing that hits you right between the eyes is this, how can this God forgive a wretch like me? How can a sinner who oozes sin out of his pores like I do, how can he be looked upon by the Lord as, as pure and clean? Even more so when you consider that this God of ours is holy, holy, holy. For that's the other area, I think, where a blind spot can develop. We, we lose sight of just how magnificent and holy our God is. How completely and totally He hates all sin of any kind, all the time. We find that teaching coming out very strongly in Isaiah 6, which we read. Recall this vision in your own mind's eye for a moment. And, and remember that he's describing your God, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh. Isaiah says, The Lord, Yahweh, was sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above the Lord stood the seraphim. The seraphim are, are special angels in the realm of, of angels. And then Isaiah describes them. Each of those angels had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And then the one seraphim called to the other seraphim and listened to what they, they sang back and forth or spoke back and forth to each other. Holy, holy, holy 
is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Can you imagine? you imagine being in Isaiah's shoes at that moment? You and I, beloved, we have to get in touch again. We have to reconsider our true condition in light of this holy God. He hasn't changed one iota. So we need to pray, Father, teach me to see my sin as you see it. You and I are not holy like he is, so we, we, we turn a blind eye to our sin or we minimize our sin. We, we think it's not a big deal. We wink at it. We've got all kinds of excuses for it, all kinds of justifications. You name it. You and I know that. But how does the Lord see our sin? This thrice holy God who has the highest angels dedicated 24-7 forever and ever, that's all that they do is sing of his holiness and glorify his great name. How do you suppose this magnificent God looks at your sin and mine? How do you suppose he regards the desires that you have in your sinful heart? or the feelings of anger that come up, or the jealousy that you feel, or the judgmental thoughts that flitter across the mind, or, or the feeling of hatred or bitterness that you've got inside. How do you think he feels? How do you think the Lord of heaven and earth judges you, your actions, your thoughts, when he compares your life in all aspects, inside and out, when he compares it to the, his own righteous law as a mirror, like we saw this morning, what does the Lord see? Isaiah knew what the Lord saw. He knew it in a heartbeat. Verse 5 of Isaiah 6, he said this, Woe is me, for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am lost. This is Isaiah talking. You know who Isaiah is, right? One of the greatest of the prophets. If ever there was a believer in the Old Testament, it's Isaiah. A loyal subject of the Lord. A follower of God, a sincere Faithful believer, he describes himself as lost. He's basically saying, wretched man that I am. When I'm here before the holiness of God, I know I'm a wretch. Job said the same. Isaiah was done for. He was a goner as a sinful man. There he was in the presence of the Almighty, in the presence of holiness, and his sin confronted him with horror, and a powerful sense of condemnation swept over Isaiah's heart. My brother, my sister, does such a sense of condemnation sweep over your heart when you bring your sins to the Lord, when you lift up your soul in prayer. 
Because it's only then that the miracle, the real miracle of forgiveness can wash over us afresh like it did to Isaiah. He tells us, one of the seraphim flew over to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And the seraphim touched my mouth, said Isaiah, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. A burning coal from the altar was brought to touch the prophet's lips, and then came the pronouncement, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Can you imagine the profound sense of relief and gladness that would have swept over Isaiah? He knew he had been dead to rights as a sinner in the presence of the holy God, but a coal from the altar, the altar of burnt offering, Cause the Lord to forgive his sin. What amazing joy. What, what wonder. How much more than for you and I, beloved, when the blood of Jesus, who was sacrificed on that other altar, the altar of the cross, when his blood is brought to us and sprinkled over us, that's the same thing that's happening. That's the experience we should have. You have to taste it again for the first time. A shocking sense of the holiness of God. A profound awareness of our guilt and condemnation. And then the incredible joy of the miracle that your sins and mine no longer count against us. Our sin has been atoned for by God in the death of Jesus. When that scene, when, when that act becomes alive in your heart as a miracle, it never gets old. And then you'll understand the pleasure and the wonder and the grace of being able to extend forgiveness to others. For the Lord Jesus adds something to this fifth petition that he does not add to any of the others in the prayer. He gives a comparison or a simile. He says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's the simile. Now, we know from the other parts of the Bible that the Lord Jesus is not teaching us here that God's forgiveness depends on our forgiveness. Jesus is not saying that God will only forgive you just as much as you've forgiven others, or that God will forgive you because you've forgiven others. Just imagine that. That'd be a scary thought, right? That God would forgive us because we forgive others. No, the Bible is very clear that God will forgive us for one reason only, because of the Lord Jesus. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, because he paid for our sins with those things, his suffering and death are the cause of us being forgiven. Full stop. 
But still, Jesus saw fit to add these words in the fifth petition, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, if you were to look up Matthew's version of this prayer, the verb is placed in the past tense, but in Luke's version, Jesus speaks in the present tense, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We forgive. This is our habit. That's the sense of the present tense. And that's important too. It's not, Jesus isn't just talking about something we did in the past. This describes the way a forgiven person acts, behaves towards others. It's a reminder to us that while we are praying for and asking God for our own forgiveness, that we are to, at the same time, show the same generous spirit toward those who have wronged us. In other words, Jesus includes these words to highlight the evidence that a person has been truly forgiven by God. And we need this prompt, don't we? It would be all too easy for us to ask for and receive forgiveness from God and then turn around to our neighbor and do the opposite. Because doing the opposite is our nature. It's part of our wretchedness. We love to be let off the hook ourselves, but we don't like letting other people off the hook. Like the servant in the parable. We didn't read it, but you know that parable in Matthew 18. We don't like letting other people off the hook, not if they've done something they're not supposed to, and then a hundred times more when they've done something wrong against me. We don't want to let them off the hook for that. Our instinct is to say, pay up. Pay what you owe. Like the servant in the parable of Matthew 18, we think too small of God's forgiveness of our own sins. We don't think very much of that. And we think way too much of the sins of others against us. Isn't that the sin of the older brother in the parable of Luke 15? We all know that famous parable of the prodigal son. We think about that prodigal son more often. He was an open rebel who left home, who squandered his father's wealth. But what about the older son? Outwardly, he was the good boy, wasn't he? He stayed home. He worked the farm. He obeyed his father's rules. And he thought he should get what was coming to him. He, he'd been the good boy. He complains to his father in the parable, You never gave me a young goat that I should celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours came home, who had devoured your property and with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son was a legalist. The big thing missing from his life was love. He didn't love his father. He was serving on the family farm, not because he loved his dad, but because he wanted the money, the big inheritance at the end. He had no appreciation for all that his father had provided him for over the years. Did you notice what the father said to him in reply? 
He said to him, Son, you are always with me. That's the first thing the father said. That's the prize. The younger son had gone off, and during that time he wasn't with the father. That's the worst thing about what happened to the prodigal son. But the older son saw no value in the fact that he had been with his father all those years. He had no love for his father. And when the younger brother came home, the younger one who had clearly repented of his rebellion, the older brother could only feel one thing, jealousy. And with that, bitterness and resentment. He couldn't stand his father's generosity to, to this bum. He doesn't even call him his brother, this, this son of yours. He refused to go in and celebrate, much less welcome back his brother from the dead. The older son did not share the forgiving spirit of his dad. How about you, beloved? How about me? This is the key to the fifth petition. This is what the Lord Jesus is after, that you and I show ourselves to be true sons of our Father in heaven by exhibiting the same love, same care, and eagerness to forgive that our Father first showed to us. Eagerness to forgive. Determined. Seeking to restore broken relationships. Notice how the Catechism puts this matter carefully. As we also find this evidence of your grace in us that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. We know God is eager to forgive. He's the father in the parable. We know God is willing to forgive all sinners, but we also know he only forgives those who truly repent. And so we are to follow suit. We are to want to forgive. We are to look for opportunity to forgive and pray that the offender may turn and be forgiven. But we don't hand out forgiveness unless there's been a change of heart. I'm not talking about annoyances, okay? I'm not talking about various sorts of disagreements we might have over matters of opinion. These are what you could call annoyances that we all have in life. Things that bother you, something somebody said. And, but brothers and sisters, you, you just need to put that behind you right away. Let that go. You can do that on your own. What I'm speaking about is when somebody has broken the commandment of the Lord and wronged you in so doing. Or perhaps they've wronged someone close to you and there's really been a true injustice in God's eyes. Then we are to look first for repentance before we extend forgiveness, just like God does. Now again, don't get me wrong. Our heart 
may not become hard and bitter, even in those circumstances. Unrighteous anger may not fester in our souls, for that is not what our Father does either. Remember, He was looking every day for the prodigal son to come back. Rather, their hardness of heart should grieve us deeply. It should break our hearts when family members or friends do not change their sinful ways. It should drive us to our knees to ask the Lord to change their hearts, to give them repentance that they might yet be saved. That's why this is not a matter of annoyances. This is a matter of salvation. That they might yet be saved to the honor of our Father above. And as we hand matters over to the Lord in prayer to administer His justice at the proper time, like the Father in the parable, we eagerly look. We maintain a posture of eagerness, eagerly wanting the prodigal to come back, eagerly looking for the opportunity to extend mercy. And when you get that opportunity... That is an amazing blessing. You ever had that? The real pleasure, the, the humble pleasure of being eye to eye with someone, someone who's wronged you and who's confessed it to you with all sincerity, with a humble heart. And then you can say to them, I, I forgive you. God has forgiven me all of my sins. And I can tell that he's forgiven you your sin. And so I hold nothing against you either. I'm so thankful. We can be brothers again. We can be sisters again. You see, out of that one miracle where God forgives us, comes another. We forgive each other. Sinners forgiving sinners. Sons and daughters acting like our Father. We need to learn that afresh. We need to practice that. Father, teach me. Teach me to know my sins and to have as much mercy on others as you have had on me. Amen.